in England or Britain when I tour, there's a sort of wadge of a response, like a group gasp or laugh or a scream or whatever it is. Um, and here it's, <laughs> it's individuals going, no, we'll wait. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with Darren Brown about his risky stage performances as a mentalist and illusionist. The strange thing is I'll, I build failure into the show because it's, it's like the juggler will drop a ball on purpose to remind you that it's difficult, otherwise you start to sort of glaze over. Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors. Generous support for Design Matters is provided by AC Hotels and Allbirds. Sometimes the best thing about being on the road for business travel is not being on the road at all. Sometimes hiding away and unwinding in your hotel room is what you need to really get away. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC guest room provides me with everything I need and nothing I don't. It has all the purposeful design details that matter most. There are plentiful outlets in convenient locations, a spacious bench for luggage storage, and an open closet for easy access. The AC guest rooms are beautiful, they're uncluttered, and they're truly comfortable, letting you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. I felt the difference the moment I slipped them on. They were the most comfortable shoes I've experienced wearing. They're all birds. They're impossibly soft as if I am floating on air. They're cozy like little magic sheep hugging my feet. And they're beautiful. Now I can't stop wearing them and they've quickly become my favorite shoe. And for good reason. Allbirds are designed with just the right amount of everything and nothing. They have clean lines and subtle detailing and are made from premium, all-natural materials like ZQ-certified merino wool and FSC-certified eucalyptus fibers. For a person with super-sensitive feet like mine, wearing them is a treat and a joy. I can't recommend them enough. Allbirds are the perfect shoes for any style. Get your own pair at allbirds.com. Darren Brown is a mind reader, a hypnotist, a psychological illusionist, and an author. His performances are part magic, part psychological meddling, and they're also about the stories we tell ourselves and each other. His art is to get inside our heads and create a sense of possibility and wonder. His shows and television specials have mystified audiences all over the world. Today, I'm going to talk to him about his fantastical career and Secret, his brand new hit show on Broadway. Darren Brown, welcome to Design Matters. Hello, that was a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Darren, I understand that when you were nine years old, you were playing with matches and you set your neighbor's boat on fire. Wow. You're straight in there, straight, straight in there, in there. Straight right, in there. right away. Yes, I did. That was it intentional? No, 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 it wasn't intentional. <laughs> I was, um, it was the next door but one neighbor, so two doors down. 
So Ross, who I went to school with, was the son, and we were both playing with matches. And then Ross went indoors to watch a football match with his family. I had no interest in football. So I (laughs) was skipping around the garden, lighting matches and throwing them over my shoulder. And then I felt this prickly heat. And at the bottom of the garden, the father had been building a boat, like, I mean, his life's work, I would imagine, which was under a tarpaulin sheet in, in pieces, not not yet completed. And the whole thing had just gone up in flames. So I fled. I went, I went home, rushed up to bed. Please, God, make that didn't happen. And... Uh, eventually, as I, I absolutely just refused to admit that it was me. It was so obviously me. Three or four days later, I was getting into the bath, and my mum was there, and I said, oh, if I tell you something honest that, I did, that was bad, but it's honest, I wouldn't get to trouble if I told the truth, would I? And she said, no, you wouldn't. So I said, no, it was me that burnt the boat down. I got the biggest smack. Um... I never had, and then apparently I was dragged next door to apologise, which I don't remember. I literally blanked it out. It must have been so dramatic. Now, at that point in your life, you've described yourself as a revolting but very charming liar. So here, this is, I yeah. guess, an instance of, of denial slash lying about having done this initially. Yeah. What made you lie so much? I mean, I wasn't like a, a proper liar. I just remember loving stories and coming home telling tales of things that had happened at school that never had and and they were all they were always harmless and it was never I'm not a congenital eye in any any sinister sense but definitely as a kid I would have some great tale that I'd tell of uh, kind of somebody bringing their dog to school and this had happened it must have was very obviously made up I'm sure but uh, yeah I think it was just a sort of rich fantasy world just a child fabulist One more sort of trivia question for you about your childhood. I understand you also had, quote, a rather violent, pervasive sniffing problem. Yes, I did. I was full of sort of childhood nervous tics. That was probably the worst, was the the sniffing. To the extent that I, when I I lived in Germany for a, a couple of years and I was attending a piano recital. It was Alfred Brendel playing the... Beethoven piano sonatas, and I'm in the Berlin Philharmonic, which is this extraordinary venue, and I just have this, I'm, I'm, how old was I? I was maybe like 18 or something, and I had this, just this this loud s- sniff, um, which cl- basically cleared the whole row. I, mean, I don't know what Alfred <laughs> Brendel thought, but by the second half when I came back, my entire row in the area around me it, it, it really? was just empty, yeah. Horrible. And I sort of I grew out of them. And I don't, still don't to this day quite know what those things are. But I did grow out of it. At the time, it felt like they were just, you know, debilitating things. My parents were despairing. And you, you do sort of eventually uh, grow out of them. But I, I can, it's always made me a little bit fascinated by things like Tourette's and those kind of, those sorts of compulsions. Uh, clearly, it was the, sort of the, the thin end of that, of that wedge. I suffer from something called misophonia, which is, it's a brain thing where you go into like a certain rage 
from hearing certain repetitive noises. Right. And sniffing is yeah. one of them. So we would have had a real issue we would have in done. the studio. Had the more you still... we talk about it, the, the more it's wanting to resurface. <laughs> I can feel it. I can feel it. Saying, <laughs> so oh, we yay. should move on. It's yay. a bad combination. <laughs> Um, you were born in Croydon, England, mm-hmm. and went to a rather posh grammar school where yeah. your father was the swimming instructor. And mm. you've written about how while your dad was strong and fit, you described yourself as an effete irritant, useless at sports, unpopular, and uncool. You were part of a classical music group known as the Music School Gang, or less charitably, the Poof Gang. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite always being an A-grade student, you didn't have a particularly good time at school. You were rather intimidated by people you have referred to as the rugger-bugger types. What kind of person is that? I guess you guys would call them jocks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awful people. Yeah, but they play rug- they play rugby. That's that's our version of whatever that is, which I think later made hypnosis quite an appealing world to get into because it, it opened up a, a world of turning the tables on those sort of extrovert types that would have intimidated me at school and now are coming up on stage to get hypnotized and, and responding well to that. So there was a strange, you know, in terms of the you know, the, the dynamics of control, I think that was an appealing thing later in life. Why do you think that the rugger-bugger types are more susceptible to something like hypnosis? They may not be, but I think in terms of doing something like a stage show and asking for volunteers, they're more likely to come up because they're more extrovert and they're there with their friends. And then they, uh, there's always a little bit with the stage show with hypnosis that you, you're slightly playing into people's tendency to play along a little bit anyway. I suppose it depends what your priorities are as a performer. That never really interested me that much, but I suppose that would also again, to tie into extrovert personality. But equally, you know, introvert people are very... Um, I'm fairly introverted. I'm not a good subject for hypnosis. Well, is it because you know too much about it? There's a little bit of that too. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. But I, 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 it's a sort of openness. It's ge- a general openness is something that makes people more suggestible. And we're all, you know, open in some contexts and not, and not others. So it's very difficult to pin down. You were also and still are quite an extraordinarily talented artist and gradually drew your way into fellow students' affections by creating caricatures of your teachers. You really are quite a talented artist. Where did you learn to draw? I always loved drawing faces at school uh, from a very young age. When I started at sort of five, I remember witches. I'd always draw witches, big noses and chins and and that kind of... uh, it somehow must have started there, and it's always stayed with me. I'm not very good at painting other things, but um, really, I, I've seen you in action. So, um, well, thank you. But it's really only just faces. Beyond that, I'm you know hopeless. I understand for a time you were also a kleptomaniac. (laughs) (laughs) It was so much fun doing my research on you, Darren. I mean, (laughs) there were so many stories I could bring up and ask you about, but I do want to talk about the current time as well. But but let's talk a little bit about the kleptomania. What kind of things did you steal, and and why did you want to steal things in the first place? Okay, so it's probably not actually kleptomania. It's probably an insult to real kleptomaniacs, but I was a shoplifter for a few years. I think it was just, it was the sort of mid-80s, and there were lots of gadgety things that were sort of emerging, and they all appealed to me, and they still do. I love sort of gadgets and so on. Um, but they're also very expensive. So somewhere between that appeal in terms of the things themselves and this sort of nascent sort of ideas of manipulation and uh, distraction and so on, I think they were they were sort of just there floating around. 
I find it a surprisingly common thing. Do you know Stephen Fry? Yes. He's sort of known here. He's, uh, he's a, a friend of mine back home, and he also had a, a real period of doing this too. And I think it's something to do with being isolated and slightly maybe precocious as a child. I think there's a whole lot of things that seem to feed into it. So, yeah, it was terrible. I remember looking around my bedroom at some point, and everything, everything I could see in my densely populated bedroom of gadgets had been stolen. Your parents didn't suspect well, that? Well, they do now. They know now. <laughs> no, 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 we mean at the time. I mean, if they listen to this. Um, no, 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 I don't think they did at the time, no. They, like, how did Darren get the money to buy I all these I don't gadgets? know. I really don't know. I think I, uh, I must have hatched some convincing lie. You were recently interviewed by Joe Rogan, and you said something really, really interesting in the show, and I'm not really sure that it's something that we could have a whole conversation about, but I just feel like telling you what it was because it stopped me. You stated that the greatest burden a child has is to bear the unlived life of its parents. I was like, whoa. (laughs) It's actually actually a quote from Jung, and it's not not quite my own. The show that I'm doing at the moment, Secret, is is about as you said in your kind introduction about the stories that we tell ourselves and these narratives in terms of where they come from, which we just mistake for the truth, I think, you know, begin at an early age. We inherit a whole bunch of... We inherit a sort of skewed compass and, uh, you know, as we emerge into a world that seems big and powerful, full of people that presumably know what they're doing while we don't, we're going to, you know, internalise a lot of messages. So it's kind of like a script we're handed at at a very early age and... We are the product of people that have their own skewed compasses and their own frustrations. And we're just, you know, from day one, we're taking all that on board. You attended Bristol University where you studied law and German. Yes. Why those particular topics? I had loved German at school. It was very well taught, so I didn't want to lose the language. It just made sense as a favorite subject to continue with it. Law, I sort of felt I was going to be a lawyer. There's that strange thing. I don't quite know how it works here, but certainly in England where I'm from, at the age of 14 or so, you're choosing your subjects that you're going to be doing for the last bit of schooling until you're 18 with a view to what sort of thing you might want to do at university, with a view to what job you're going to do, with a view to whatever promotions are going to happen in that job. And we all do this, like there's some point in your 50s when it all happens and you go, all right, this is it, now I'm here. And, of course, that never happens. I like Alan Watts's idea that, you know, when you listen to a piece of music, you don't just wait till the end. Or if you watch a film, you don't just skip to the last scene because that's where it all comes together. And maybe life is, is more like a piece of music and we're supposed to be dancing. You saw your first hypnotist, a man named Martin Taylor, when you were 18 years old. What made you decide to go to a hypnotist in the first place? Uh, yeah, this was a life-changing moment for me. I, there was, it was just advertised. I guess it's quite popular amongst students, things like hypnosis shows, that kind of circuit. I'd never in my life thought about hypnosis, had no views about it. And it was a very good show. It, wasn't, it was hilarious, but it wasn't embarrassing anybody. No one was being made to look stupid. I left that night determined that that's what I would do. So that's how I started. I started off learning uh, hypnosis, and it, it grew from there. Where do you think that fascination about hypnosis came from? Came from. Well, I, I went because it just sounded like a fun thing. I think the way it stuck because I think that issue of control, even if it's an illusion of control, it's sort of very much tied in with control, isn't it? Hypnosis, as is um, magic in a way as well. So I think there was that. I think the desire to perform as well, which is not something I had really sort of articulated. I was very, I'd, I'd come from this school where I'd, 
wasn't exactly bullied, but I was picked on a bit and generally not one of the cool kids. And then suddenly in this brand new world of university with this blank slate and not having quite ever settled into a sort of healthy social life with schoolmates, I was just a little bit too much of an attention seeker and a bit just generally too much. So I think the the desire to perform was something that was uh, going on in the background and then was very helpful because then when you do perform, you can channel your attention-seeking to that and leave. it kind of leaves the rest of you a bit more um, balanced and open to normal <laughs> interactions that you're not constantly trying to control and impress others with. You've said that hypnosis is the quickest, most fraudulent route to impressing people and that it's a cheat code to the human mind. I think I was talking about magic, actually, rather than hypnosis there. I think m- magic is something that people get into because they normally don't feel very confident in themselves. And you can do this trick that it might be very difficult, might be technically difficult, and someone might have spent years learning it, or it's just something you've pulled out of a Christmas cracker. And it's very hard for people to really know the difference if you succeed in fooling them. And the world of magic, I think, is sadly full of mainly men who haven't really sort of <laughs> haven't needed to develop the social skills that people generally do in order to get on because they've had this this shortcut, this cheat to just impressing people. But of course what that misses is the fact that in life we don't really, the last thing we want is for someone to be trying to impress us. That's not really what we warm to in people, is it? We warm to things like kindness and whether someone's nice to be around and so on, all those things that are really quite separate. So it's not really a very helpful um, shortcut at all, but it is something you rely on. So certainly for me, I did for many years. And hypnosis is related to that, but I think I was specifically, I think, thinking about magic. How do you hypnotize a person? Good question. I had a strange moment once when I was in Sicilia University. I'd have students that would come and see me because uh, they were all up for being hypnotized. And I was known as the guy that did that. Um, if somebody responded well, I'd leave them with the suggestion that when you come back, if I click my fingers and say sleep, you'll go straight into the sleep state. And this would save 20 minutes of talking someone into that state, which I'd have done the first time if they happened to respond really well to it. And that would work. And often if you see a hypnotist that just clicks his fingers and someone goes to sleep, it sometimes is because there's been that kind of priming before. So often on TV, there'll be stuff that happens off camera but when everyone gets hypnotized, but they can't show it because if you broadcast it, there's all sorts of problems. Uh, so it looks magical, but often it's to do with that kind of conditioning that's already happened. Anyway, so a guy comes back one week, or I think he's coming back, but actually it's the first time I've met him. But I thought it was someone I'd seen before. So I sat him down and went and said, sleep, click my fingers. And he went straight out. And then we did whatever it was we were doing. Perhaps he you know, wanted to give up smoking or something like that. And then it was only afterwards when I was talking with him that I realized I hadn't met him before. So it didn't make any sense to me as to why he responded to me clicking my fingers and went into this trance state. And, of course, I realized that it was my confidence at the time because I believed he had been conditioned to respond to that. The fact that he happened to be very suggestible in himself as well made it work and that that was the key. It wasn't the 20 minutes script that I would normally use. It could happen in an instance if the psychological environment was, was just right. So now, cut forward, I do it all the time on stage. I have people come up and I do hypnotize them very rapidly because it's about understanding those sorts of moments. So that's one thing. It's, very, it's hard to answer because it can vary. You can sit somebody down and there are techniques of relaxation and focus that you can use, or sometimes it can happen in an instant. But ultimately, my toolkit is the ongoing experience of the person that I'm with. The show I do is about the audience, which I think is unusual for any sort of magician. It's normally about the magician. It's normally about the guy on stage. And hypnosis is about a constant attention to that 
developing narrative or the developing experience of the uh, of the person that you're sat opposite. But it can take so many different forms. It's hard to hard to pin it down to any one. What happens to a person physiologically when they're being hypnotized? What do they feel mm. like? Uh, it really varies. So, for example, I used, in the stage show I used to do, so if you think of hypnosis in that kind of, of a stage show. So I would make myself invisible at the end of the show. So I would tell, say I've got 10 people on stage, I'd say you can't see me, and then I'd float something around. So if I pick up this glass that's in front of us here, I'd say I'd move that around and the people on stage would freak out and, you know, run off the stage and so on. And it looks, in terms of a bit of thing that have fun on stage, it looks great. But what I would do afterwards is I'd invite those people back up when the show's finished, maybe doing a Q&A, and I'd say, all right, now tell us what was your actual experience? Were you just seeing a glass floating or what was going on? And you'd get one group that would say, oh, to be honest, I, I, you, you were obviously just holding the glass, but I felt a bit, it was just a bit difficult to put my hand up and say this isn't working, so I just kind of went with it. Then you have this middle group that will say, uh, well, I kind of, like, now you say that, then yes, I suppose it was, that makes sense that it was you doing it, but just at the time, the... I could only treat it as if that glass was floating. And that that was so compelling that the fear I felt was genuine. And when I ran away, it really was. But yes, but when I think back, of course it was you doing it. And then the final group that are saying, you know, well, I don't believe you were holding that glass. Presumably that was on wires or something because there's no way you were there. That was definitely floating. Now, of course, I don't know whether uh, is that last group just saying that because they want to appear the best in the group. I mean, you'd never really climb inside someone's head and know exactly what their experience was. But if you take all that at face value, then you've got three wildly different sorts of experiences. I think it's a bit like when an actor plays a role that he or she is deeply immersed in, there's a kind of emotional switch that happens, but it's nothing unusual or magical. It's something we can sort of understand in that context quite easily. And I think we just have different capacities for that. And some people really can lose themselves in something. And for others, they don't. So some people talk about hypnosis like it was, well, I sort of closed my eyes and listened, and but I could have opened my eyes at any point, and I really don't know. It's very hard to pull apart whether they're hypnotized or not, or whether they're just trying to please the hypnotist. And, and, and others will have this experience that they can't remember and felt qualitatively very, very different. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's sort of impossible to say, but that makes it a very compelling thing. If a doctor gives you a placebo and you respond to that, I guess that's a form of suggestion, certainly, which is really the technology of hypnosis. You might not want to think that it's hypnotizing you. It doesn't quite make sense, but probably what's going on is a very similar it's thing. brainwash, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's playing into that same capacity. But then the other thing that confuses it is things that appear to be magical, and there must be something going on in the person that is different. This must be some special state. But they're not because they're just misunderstood as phenomena. So a, a classic hoary old thing you get that a stage hypnotist doing is giving someone an onion to eat and saying, this is a juicy apple, and, you know, someone's tucking into it on stage. And you think, well, that's not normal. You couldn't do that normally. So, But then I had this discussion with a friend of mine that I work on the, my stage shows with, and he said, I bet you can just eat an onion anyway, can't you? And he went to my fridge. I had an onion. He took it out, took a big bite out of it. He was like, there, it's fine. You can, you can just eat an onion anyway if you don't think about it. So he's motivated by sort of proving a point, which is very different than somebody saying, I dare you to take a bite of this onion. 
try and eat the onion. But of course, your state then is very different and it's going to be disgusting. But in trying to prove a point, he bypassed the kind of, you know, the repulsion of it and it was fine. So there's a huge range of possible experiences that's changed just by that factor of different types of motivation. So maybe hypnosis is just another sort of motivation. Um, I, I've Occasionally, you see there are stories of um, operations that are carried out where uh, with no anaesthetic and the patient is just hypnotized, which looks amazing when you see the footage of it and the person's, you know, cut open and there's a, they're talking and they're wide awake. But then again, when you think about well, what is the layer of skin that actually feels pain, sometimes they even use a local anaesthetic when they're doing that. So does that then just invalidate the whole thing? And would you feel it if someone's rummaging around inside you? Are there the, the right sort of nerve endings there? Probably not. It might be uncomfortable, but it wouldn't be horrific and painful, which is what it, of course, what it looks like it must be when you see the footage. So there's all, all that enters into it too. Sometimes the, the theatrics of it makes it very difficult to judge what's really going on. You started to develop, and I, I think it was around this time after being exposed to hypnotism, what you've referred to as your peripheral psychological skills. Mm. So I have sort of two questions there. Mm. First, can you define what a peripheral psychological skill is and how did you begin to get so good at it? What I meant by that, I suppose, is the kind of quirky corners of psychology that, that appeal to the to the magician and, and the hypnotist. I think which we are, are what? Which are, well, how you hypnotize somebody, how um, how you create a false memory. When I mean, these are all things that... False memory has obviously great, important social implications with things like, you know, eyewitness testimonies and so on. It's the work of Elizabeth Loftus and others in that area that, are, that it has a real implication. But, you know, magicians have been doing it for years with the simplest the simplest little um, verbal tricks and so on, because a magician knows that half of the trick happens after the trick is over. Like, so if you, it's like if you have a holiday that's kind of fun, but what you turn it into afterwards when you're telling other people about it, then it starts to become the amazing holiday or the terrible holiday. That narrative that you form sort of tidies it up and reduces it. And, and with a magic trick, you are going to reform that trick in the telling but you don't want to sound like you've been duped in the telling, so you start to exaggerate it as you tell other people, as you would if you were exaggerating the story of a, of a great holiday. And in doing that, you change your memory of it. So, as I mean, a, that's memory in general, right? Uh, every, yeah, absolutely. Every time we yeah. remember something, we remember the memory. Exactly, and yeah. Then and then to... how do you start to pick it apart? So magicians are very, are very good at that. To give a really simple example of a card trick... Say you do a card trick with a deck of cards that's in a special order to start with, a stacked deck, as magicians call it. So it's very important that the person you're doing the trick with, the spectator, doesn't shuffle them. But there's a point halfway through the trick when they can shuffle them, and it's fine. So what you would do, if you're a thinking magician, is halfway through the trick, when you reach the point that it's safe for them to shuffle, you say, why don't you shuffle the cards again, but this time do it under the table, now, the again is disingenuous because they haven't shuffled it before, but it's lost within the, but this time do it under the table. So now they're taking the cards under the table and in responding to that instruction and now they're thinking about the awkwardness of shuffling under the table, that again has just sort of slipped by unnoticed. And it's quite likely afterwards when they're describing it that they'll start off saying, well, I shuffled the deck and then I did this and that and I shuffled it again. You know, it just, it, so there are... Little tricks, which is not much difference to those uh, experiments where, you know, if you say to an eyewitness how fast you think the car was going when it slammed into the wall, they'll give much higher numbers than when it hit the wall or when it, you know, how fast was the red car going when it hit the wall and it wasn't a red car, but they start to remember it's a red car. So it's, it's letting ideas slip by unnoticed. And I think, I think anyone in that world of 
magic and mentalism and so on, and, and uh, particularly hypnosis, would be pretty deft at that. Uh, uh, the classic hypnosis technique, I suppose, uh, linguistically, is pacing and leading. So that idea of swinging a watch in front of somebody's eyes and making them go to sleep comes from the fact that there's a certain physiological reaction to, if you're looking up, up at a watch swinging, or up at anything, eventually your eyes are going to get sort of a bit blinky, right? They're going to go a little bit tired. It doesn't make you fall into a trance, but you're going to want to blink. But if you've got somebody feeding back to you what you are experiencing, you are, as you are watching this uh, watch, and as it swings, and as you breathe, and as you listen to me, you can notice that your eyelids are beginning to get tired as you relax in the chair, as you continue to listen to me. And you, you're feeding back, for every nine things that are true and actually happening, you're just nudging a tenth one into an area that's a bit more subjective and where you want the person to go. So as you listen to me and begin to sink down into this state, you can continue to watch the watch swinging as your eyelids become heavier and as you notice the sound of blah, blah, blah. And as you're, you know, you're, and you're just, you're, you're taking something that's real and adding that little bit extra. You're letting ideas just slip by, by circumventing any challenge or um, conflict. I know that when people are thinking about something, when they're trying to answer, they often look up mm. as well. I wonder if that's just a mechanism of the brain. We tend to look up when we're sort of accessing images in our head. So we, we, it depends on the sort of thoughts we're, we're doing. This doesn't apply to everybody. You can often tell, for example, when someone's lying, um, because there's a difference where we tend to look, if people do that, where we look if we're getting a picture that we're remembering versus a picture that we're making up. What, so if, what are those differences? Well, if you imagine a series of images of you cleaning your teeth a week ago and then a few days ago and then this morning and then tomorrow and a week in the future and a year in the future, you'll probably stack them left to right. There's sort of a natural timeline that we follow. But you'll also notice that wherever you mentally look to find that image when you create the picture, that you'll tend to sort of go there even if you just asked to picture that thing on its own. So then you've got a difference there. And again, this, this is not... It's not a rule for everybody, but if you look at where somebody is making that image when it's a remembered image versus cleaning your teeth in the future, which hasn't happened. So that's a made, that's a constructed image. Someone's making that up. Um, they'll, look, they'll normally look somewhere else, and very often it's one to the left and one to the right because the left-hand side is where we're putting all the stuff that's happened in the past, and off to the right is sort of is the future. Where so, do you learn this? It's stuff that's been around. There's a, there's a whole world of neurolinguistic programming which makes some really spurious claims, and I don't want to particularly endorse it. But as you're bringing up the idea of eye movements, it's sort of it is an interesting area. But you can you can work it out by asking someone a series of questions, just watching where their eyes go. So if you ask if you're asking questions about what did you do last night, and you ask visual questions like, you know, what did you eat? What color was the front door when you parked outside the place? How dark was it? And you just see where their eyes go. And you could, look, if one of those answers is suddenly off to the right instead of off to the left, they're accessing that image from a different place. So that may well be the fib. The other thing we do, of course, when we lie is we tend not to refer to ourselves in the first person as much. So I always think of this with seeing a, a show and then going around and seeing people afterwards because I know this how this happens. I still feel myself doing it. And it's all I think about when other people come around after my show and talk about it. So, for example, you haven't enjoyed a show you go around to meet the, the person. It's very hard to say, I loved it. It's very easy to say, it was great. 
It was great. You were amazing. What a, what a great evening. Thank you so much. Very easy to do all that. It's very hard to take ownership of any of it. I loved it. I had such a great time. It's very hard to do when you're lying. And uh, it's much more of a reliable giveaway than all those things we think we look for, you know, sort of putting your hand to your mouth or people going to cross their legs or break eye contact. There's all sorts of other reasons why those things happen. But that's quite a good one because people don't, uh, people don't know about it. Mm-hmm. Now we do. Mm. <laughs> so essentially, you're saying that the sort of thinking man's magician studies people's responses in an effort to find out which buttons to press in order to make them behave in a way that you want them to behave. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. <laughs> You've neatly summed that up. Okay. I could have just said that. Yeah. <laughs> As you were improving your skills, you found yourself drawn towards the psychology of the magic rather than the physical mechanics. Mm. Um, would you say your skill is an equal combination of both? Don't don't you need both? Yeah, you need both, absolutely. I, I, I always say it's a mixture of genuine psychological technique and then the techniques of the magician um, but there's a, and also the hypnotist as well. So that all congeals into a sort of gray area and, and then... I suppose half the fun is picking it apart when you're when you're watching it, but yes, absolutely. The, Sounds uh, like it would be all the fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always huge fun and great and great fun to do. It's a it's a. Uh, I think of it like I'm a magician, but instead of my props being you know a deck of cards or rabbits and boxes, it's the ongoing experiences out of the audience, the stories that they're telling themselves. It really is. It's about it's about that. And I'll, in order to create those effects and get people to those places where I want them to be, I'll be using a mixture of conjuring techniques and purely psychological techniques, but not normally a, a, a what mixture are, what, of both. Give me an example of what a conjuring technique is and what a psychological technique might be. A conjuring technique might be, if you were doing a card trick, switching a card. I, I don't do any card tricks in the show, but like, like a mechanical sort of, you know, something is palmed or something is introduced secretly, um, uh, as opposed to... You know, you ask someone to think of a card and you use a psychological technique to make them think of a particular card. What would that be? Within the show that I do, there are times when the audience are responding to like a subliminal film I'll use or in other shows a a certain tone or uh, something that they watch or take part in that gives them a compulsion to do certain things. And it brings out people's natural suggestibility. And I use that a lot in the show using sort of hypnotic techniques without... It's not a hypnosis show, so I'm not really hypnotizing anybody, but I'm using that technology to make a whole bunch of stuff work. And then that is sort of augmented by the techniques that I've learned as a magician that are more sort of mechanical to then sharpen the whole experience into particular sort of effects and, and, and tricks. So it's a, it's a real mix. And depending on the individual thing I do, sometimes it weighs down, it weighs more heavily on the conjuring tricky side and, and other times a purely psychological experience. The joy is, as with any good theory, it's the simplest thing that I do that creates the largest effect. Sometimes just saying a word in a particular way or a little idea that slips in because of how I say something plants a story in the audience's mind in such a way that I can create a huge effect out of it, nothing more than just a, a use of a word at some point. Talk about the role of suggestibility. When you're on stage and you bring a volunteer up, how much are you actually pushing them subconsciously, unconsciously to give you what you need? Constantly. I think every every moment is like that. The compliance is, I find, a really interesting area. I have a few shows on Netflix, and um, one of them is called The Push, and the idea of the show was to see how far social compliance could be pushed. Would somebody kill somebody 
uh, just the Milgram out. kind of yeah, exercises. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, as with a few of these shows I've done, which are very different um, from the stage shows, these are like Truman Show, big elaborate experiments where one person has no idea they're being filmed and everyone else in the environment is, is an actor. So in this particular show, somebody finds themselves at a huge auction party thing that's going on and um, they're there as a guest to network, but they're a little bit out of their league and they get roped into helping with the event. And the first thing they're asked to do is to mislabel vegetarian or meat-filled sausages, sausage rolls as uh, as vegetarian ones. So they which they do a little sheepishly, and then it just builds from there bit by bit by bit. And there's a dead body, and then they have to hide the dead body, then they have to pose as the, in a kind of weekend of Bernie's kind of way, they have to pose as the person that's died. And it's sort of hilarious and bizarre and sort of excruciating, particularly if you're prone to anxiety when you're watching it, of seeing this person just being nudged in these more and more ridiculous directions. It's, each thing is building on the last until this climactic scene when they have to push someone off a roof and it was it was it was sort of amazing it was a, it was uh, astonishing watching i don't want to spoil any surprises in terms of how it, how it goes but it is called the push it's on netflix and i have done a series of things like this the other one on netflix is called sacrifice and i take a very right wing and essentially racist guy and what i'm trying to do is get him to the point where he'll lay down his life where he'll take a bullet for a mexican illegal immigrant so again a whole series of these uh, elaborate hidden you know, he knows he's taking part in a show in this one, but he thinks it's a documentary about something else. But meanwhile, there's this whole underground thing going on. And again, as with all these things, I've done a number of shows in, in a similar sort of vein. People slot into certain ways of behaving, and there's all these little nudges that are happening in the periphery to keep the person online, on the you know, as in as in on on, on the track. All of which, of course, can be jeopardised by something that we haven't thought of, which adds a whole other element of... Or somebody's will suddenly showing itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. So all all we can do is work with actors that are going to be flexible enough to deal with that. We actually had with with this guy, uh, there's in the sort of climactic scene of this show, Sacrifice. So the guy from Florida, he'd come over to England for the main bulk of the filming, and then he thought it was over and he went back home. And then, you know, whatever it was, a couple of months later, we turn up and we're secretly filming at this point. And he thinks he's going to Vegas in order to meet a friend. So he flies to L.A. and then he's going to get a car down to Vegas. But actually, the driver is one of us. And we've got these hidden cameras in the car and he's never going to make it to Vegas. He's going to end up breaking down. And then this whole dramatic shootout thing is going to occur. And in all of this eight months work of tiny, detailed sheer level of work that goes into making these things convincing. We'd forgotten this this really what turned out to be a crucial detail, which was the the driver who's taking him from L.A. and knows what to do to pretend to break down everything, because he was never obviously going to go to Vegas. The driver has no hotel in his mind that he's supposed to be going to. He doesn't really understand that bit of it. You know, he's just been given the brief, which is here's where you break down. And, of course, the guy in the back, Phil, our Mark, our guy that's going through it, is asking, so hang on, what's the name of the hotel? And where are we? how long will it take us to get there? And asking those questions you would as a passenger. And the driver just can't answer. The driver's panicking a little bit, doesn't know what it's safe to say and what it isn't. 
And we nearly nearly lost the guy. He nearly just called the police and everything from his car because it was it, he thought he was being kidnapped, which was actually not not far from the truth. Um, so yeah, there's a it's a they're very elaborate and extraordinary um, things. So that's that's kind of my other world, really. The stage shows I do are rooted in really what I began with, which is the hypnosis and the, the magic and so on. And now this the TV shows are more about. I, I sort of felt like. I didn't. I didn't want to make the shows about me because I'm not that interesting, and also dramatically, it's not that interesting having somebody go, "Hey, look how clever I am." Whereas if you take a real person and put them through drama, now you've got something that's interesting. So I've sort of taken my illusion, whatever, creating skills, but applied them to this different sort of world of how do you create a a, um, a fiction for somebody and manipulate them to get to this point that is good for them. I mean, they are. There's a sort of a you know. There's a there's a a very a good heart to these shows. It's not manipulation for its own sake. So, yeah, so I've sort of, yeah, moved into two different worlds. But those shows, the TV shows, they're more improvisatory mm. in that it would seem like you have to have an infinite number of scenarios that could happen that you have to plan for because you don't know necessarily how somebody is going to respond. So if X person does Y, then the team mm. has to behave in a certain way. Or if they do Z, then the team has to... It's not way. normally that difficult because the the whole point of that scenario in the first place is to get the person to do X. Okay. So uh, the whole thing is to manipulate. Normally, every every element of it is to manipulate. Um, generally speaking, it's just pointing someone in a direction without them realizing they're being pointed. So you truly, truly, truly have no psychic skills. You're no. not a mind reader or a clairvoyant or a wizard. No, none. None of those none things. Of those things. No. None of them. Okay. Now, I, I think it would be safe to say that your interest in magic diluted your faith in religion. Yes, it was definitely part of it. I Around the time, so when I started university, I was um, kind of a happy, clappy sort of Christian, and I was part of the Christian union at my hall of residence. I guess a bit like a dorm, I guess you'd have it here. But at the time, I was also learning hypnosis, and uh, it really bothered them and then that sort of that started a note of I had them turn up at a show I did and they were talking in tongues and exorcising demons from the process and that struck me as odd that struck me as well that's surely that's born out of just not understanding what this is plus I was still believing myself at the time and I thought well isn't you know isn't the, the human mind is the pinnacle of God's creation if you believe that so I don't really understand why it's sort of taboo or I didn't didn't really understand this what seemed a very fear-filled response on their part and then, yeah, and then you sort of do learn a natural skepticism. I mean, magicians generally become very skeptical of supernatural claims and so on. You've always had the magician versus the psychic dynamic that's been going on since, I suppose, Houdini and, you know, Conan Doyle those years ago. So, yeah, bit, bit by bit it sort of eroded. And then I became an atheist and then I think you tend to embrace if you've been a fervent believer, you become a fervent disbeliever, and then uh, now I've sort of mellowed out, and I see I see um, religion as something of value and uh, not to be sniffed at, but I just don't happen to believe in it in that immediate sense. How easy is it for you to get into somebody's mind? I read that you can do it in a handshake or a look. Well, I always, I mean, I do a sort of handshake induction within the show and it'll vary. Some nights the person collapses to the floor um, a split second later and other times it's 
a much softer thing. Um, it all depends on the person. I saw you on Jimmy Fallon, and he didn't even want to shake your hand because he was so sure that you'd be able to read his mind from <laughs> Yeah, that. that's right. And I was actually thinking, God, should I even look at him? He's going to look at me. He's going to know everything about me <laughs> before I even start speaking. But all that's very helpful. You see, that's a very helpful um, kind of projection that people have because it allows me... It's sort of like half the work's done for me before I do anything. So it's it's... It creates a, any sort of prestige that gets ahead of you as if you're remotely working with suggestion means that, you know, you're already ahead of the game. So that's a helpful thing. So I both have to slightly encourage it within the context of a show to get people in the right psychological place. But at the same time, maybe it's just being British and naturally apologetic. But I don't really want people in real life thinking that, you know, I have these superpowers. Well, just because they don't think it doesn't mean that you don't have it. Exactly. Exactly. I know what I'm doing. Um, How much of what you do is teachable? Oh, I think it's all teachable. I think it's like playing the piano. Like anyone can play the piano. Not everybody's going to put in the time or have whatever that personality is that makes you obsess over learning the piano. So not everybody's going to be great at it. But there's nothing in there that. So, you know, anyone but not everyone, I suppose, could, could do it. The New York Times wrote that you prefer risky versions of effects, which means that sequences can Mm. and do go wrong. Mm. For example, in an early show when an audience volunteer had to choose between an empty box and a box that held 5,000 pounds, volunteers occasionally won the money. How often do things go wrong, so to speak? There's a lot of potential of things going wrong and a lot of things that go wrong that don't register as having gone wrong because I'll sort of quickly maneuver past them or head straight to point B and you never knew there was a point A intended uh, originally. So that happens. Um, In terms of things just going obviously wrong and just failing, I try and make sure those don't happen at the finale and so on. You don't want to err at the finale. But there's Um, a big risk that could happen during the finale. There are, but but the strange thing is I build failure into the show because it's, it's like the juggler will drop a ball on purpose to remind you that it's difficult, otherwise you start to sort of glaze over. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, no, they will. They'll That's always, cool. they'll always do it. Um, so I will, I'll, I'll do the same. I'll, I'll make. You'll have seen mistakes in the show, and I've all. I, the value of getting some things wrong just to reset people's expectations or appreciation of of what you're doing, because without them, it can just start to turn into yes, well done, well done. What else? What? Yeah, great. You know, it can just get too much. So uh, those things are important. So I'm very happy with uh, failure. You just try not to do it at the crucial moments. I saw Secret last week mm. and... Say no more. I know, I know where you're going with that thought. I know, thought. I know. Okay, I have been sworn to secrecy. It's very much what happens in Fight Club stays in Fight Club. Mm. At the top of Secret, you talk about one of your own secrets as you were growing up and how you came out as gay when you were 30. Mm. Um, but I understand that until that time, taking mm. up magic had been a distraction from your sexuality. And you've said that being gay facilitated your capacity for shame. <laughs> Why is that? I can relate to that. I didn't come out till I was 50. So right. you've got 20 years on me. Okay. Um, but so, so tell me why you felt that it facilitated your capacity for shame. Well, there's, there's a sort of 70s cliche, particularly for, well, I suppose specifically for gay men of the, being the hairdresser or the interior decorator or the fashionista or, or, or even, even an actor. And all of those things are about dazzling surfaces and I think the reason why they resonated as cliches and still I think to an extent do is that if you have 
buried something inside of yourself which you find shameful, rightly or wrongly, but you just, well, wrongly, but it's become something that psychologically for you is a buried shameful thing that you can't share. You get very good at these dazzling surfaces. So deflecting kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, magic does that brilliantly or creating a whole persona of yourself as a mysterious hypnotist figure is a great way of avoiding awkward conversations about sex. So I think it, there's no coincidence that that was, that was all very uh, appealing. And again, those control things are about being able to control a situation because you're just, avoid, <laughs> you're just avoiding conversations that otherwise everybody else is having. And then, of course, the experience of coming out, why it's so valuable and why it's so liberating is not because freedom, per se, at least it wasn't for me, a great sense of, oh, now I can be me. It was realizing, oh, people don't care. People you don't said care. that you were, not a, you're expecting your coming out to be like the climax of the Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Same with me. Yeah, people I, standing people on like, tables and, mm, uh, yeah, you, people yeah. Don't, really don't care. Once you've swallowed that sort of disappointment, you then realize, oh, well, if the, people don't care about that, they don't care about any of the other stuff because that was the big one. It's interesting to find out yeah. that people really don't think about you as much as you think they think about you. Exactly. When I finally told my niece, she was like, cool. And I'm like, yeah cool like that's all i get it's cool cool that's not like debbie i, I live in california everybody's gay <laughs> yeah yeah now when you were young i understand you took part in a counseling course to try to cure yourself of being gay not quite no i i flirted on the periphery of that i had a friend who was going through that who came out to me and then i came out to him and then it was a christian it was one of those you know um gay conversion therapy thing, except the reality of it was, I think, as misguided as it was, it was a lot gentler than saying that makes it sound. But it was offering a a lifeline if you were a young Christian that was conflicted, didn't want to be gay, rather than just having going to your priest and being told to read your Bible more, you were actually having a sort of what appeared to be a plausible psychological model that you could be explained to you and offered you some sort of way out. I, I never, and I never really got involved more than reading the books and attending one conference. This friend of mine went, was actually going through this sort of therapy. But of course it doesn't work, that's the thing. And it, just slowly it was dawning on me, hang on, you're not really producing any people that have convincingly gone through this and emerged yeah, as Stories straight. we tell ourselves, right? Exactly. At best it was people that have sort of deeply burying their story with their instincts yeah. yeah exactly so um it it was just sort of in the end just felt very sad but um uh equally i you know i think if i if i'd have come out just the other part of what you were asking i i don't think i'd i think i'd be doing this now i think there was in all of that energy to sort of create those deflecting techniques and that kind of persona has sort of got me where i am so otherwise you'd have been a lawyer i'd have probably been a lawyer can you imagine no <laughs> Although I've read that you did think you would have been a good barrister, given how well you understand people. Maybe, but well, I, but that's equally that's come out of everything that's happened since. That's so true. I, I don't know. That's Either true. way, it all sounds very depressing. Well, fortunately for us, you are doing what you're doing, and Secret is your eighth live show. But it's your first live stage show to be performed in the United States on Broadway. Yes. Um, the show originally debuted in 2017 off-Broadway at the Atlantic Theatre Company with the mm -hmm. great, great Neil Pepe. What made you decide to have the show here? Is there a difference in the way the audience is responding? Uh, I think in terms of the decision to do it, I think that's just about, is there an opportunity? Yes, there is. So you take it because what, what an amazing opportunity to have. And I personally have never had any sort of ambition for stuff. I just like to do whatever is enjoyable at the time. And I really enjoyed the off-Broadway thing when that happened. I enjoyed living in New York for a bit. So to me, this is another opportunity to do that. And then in terms of the audiences, 
Yeah, it's a very different experience. Even at the Atlantic, which was seated 200, half of which were subscription members who were sort of fairly elderly and were coming to see a, a show they'd already sort of paid for, didn't really know what it was, perhaps come for a little sleep. There was quite a lot of, quite a lot of that happening. <laughs> no. Um, so really only half the audience were there as kind of like... Zealots. Zealots or fans. And it was even that was amazing, the sound that was coming out of that audience and also watching that other half get caught up and it was, was a delight. So now this is, you know, a thousand people, but in a theatre that's actually strangely feels even more intimate than the Atlantic did. It's a very gorgeous theatre, the, the court theatre. And an audience that, as I felt at the Atlantic, are what you do here, and maybe it's a New York thing where everyone's individuality has turned up to 11 anyways, people narrate their experience. So in, in, in England or Britain, when I tour, there's a sort of wodge of a response, like a group gasp or laugh or a scream or whatever it is. Um, and here it's... <laughs> It's individuals going, no, whoa, wait. And like, you know, there's this whole kind oh, of Oh, there was a lot which, of activity yeah. the night that we saw the show. We don't do that. We do not do that in Britain. I mean, you know, oh, I, I was genuinely taken aback. I'm not sure what I was People were screaming. Yeah, people it's amazing. The Although there were a few people on stage, and again, I don't want to give mm. away too much, but sometimes you would do something so mind-blowing that I would have expected the volunteer to be more mind-blown. And I was like, that's all the reaction you're giving him? He just read your mind. Yeah. How could you not be flabbergasted. Because it's weird being on stage. I That's get, yeah, why. I can and imagine, it's what we yeah. do. It's, it's actually, you know, it's been a real lesson for me as to what you do with nerves. Like when somebody comes up on stage and they're nervous, the room loves them. That person feels very vulnerable, but everybody loves them. People that come up on stage and turn their nerves into, I'm going to be funny or I'm going to not, I'm going to appear not interested or I'm just going to make jokes all the time or I'm going to try and spoil what you're doing. All those millions of other things that we do forgivably because we're just nervous. Everyone hates them. Um, <laughs> and it became a real lesson in, oh, it's, it is okay just to, be, uh, just to be vulnerable is actually a very powerful thing. You've said that you think there's something really valuable about magic that is not very often tapped into. It's a great analogy for how we live in the world and the stories that we form and the very idea of a narrative, the idea of being huddled around a fire telling a story is in its inherent coziness, shutting out the world that exists further away outside of the firelit clearing, a whole world of things that are being excluded. And of course, that's what a magician is doing. There's all this stuff that's going on that you don't know about, but he's asking you to tell yourself a certain story. Mm. I think that's beautiful. And I'm wondering if you can give us some examples of the kinds of stories we're telling ourselves or that we get stuck in that magic might help open up. Well, I don't know if magic works therapeutically, but it certainly, I think, is an analogy. And it took me a long time because magic's so caught up in the, you know, the childish associations that it has that it's hard to, hard, it's hard for me to see it as having anything of any real uh, value. Particularly in sort of where we are today when the very notion of story is weaponized now, really. It's, it's sort of everything is narrative. And it's, it's also a little confused sometimes that when someone talk about people's stories being heard... Do we mean truths or do we just? I know mean what story? is fake news? Yeah. Fake stories, right? Yeah, it's fake it, narrative. Yeah. Fake exactly. So reality. story is suddenly everywhere, which then means that language suddenly has a potency. Language and harm suddenly have a relationship now that they never used to have. Hence the whole world of safe spaces and, and so on, which is, you know, that language actually can be seen as, as sort of physically harmful. I mean, so all this, all this has really changed with the idea of narrative entering the kind of mainstream in a way as it wasn't before. And I just sort of realized that, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm manipulating 
stories and any any magician is um, is getting you to just join up the dots in a, in a particular way. And where I think it's helpful is that it moves it beyond just saying you need to own your narrative, have authorship of your story, because it's just that's just going to be another story. I think the key thing is it is just a story, and there are these other things going on that we live in a world that's actually ambiguous and it's messy and it's complicated. And part of growing up, part of maturing is appreciating and tolerating ambiguity. That's hard to do when we're children. You know, we scream as an infant and someone comes and provides us with, with what we need. And slowly that caregiver, whether it's a mother or whoever, needs to disillusion us, needs to start not providing us with what we need in order to have us develop a realistic adult relation to the world, which we don't, we don't get what we want just by screaming and stamping. Yeah. And some people don't learn that. And well, don't. ambiguity tends to be always perceived negatively because yeah. of the uncertainty in our reptilian brain and all of that. Well, it's, it fights against that, you know, that we're pattern-finding creatures, which means we have to reduce and we have to find these uh, neat stories in order to move forward, of course. But at the same time, it's just not an accurate reflection of how the, how the world is. And I think particularly now that story is such a... is so part of the <laughs> narrative. Um, I don't think magic has any particular, as I said, therapeutic effect directly, but what I try and do with the show is remind us that this is at least an area to think about and... The reason why you think you're seeing something that's impossible or mind-blowing or whatever is because your brain is... That story you've told yourself is sort of butting up against reality. You can't quite connect the two. So it's either a fun piece of impossibility, like the Statue of Liberty has disappeared, or you ascribe whatever powers you want to to me because that's the only explanation you can find. But it's, it's just what you're doing with the story that doesn't make sense. But there is all this other stuff going on all the time that we don't know about. And we, we go out into a world full of complex, subtle people like you and me and the people that we love most. And we, we reduce them to these neat characters that fit within our stories. And we say she's insecure and he's arrogant and they can't be trusted. And, they, you know, these are, they are just stories. And I think the power is by realizing that and allowing for openness and ambiguity, we get less stuck and we have the opportunity to be kinder to see that people's stress is just based on fear it's based on their panic and that we too have that I, I do feel like that life is centripetal life pulls back to the difficult stuff and sooner or later we find ourselves there and those moments when we feel then most frightened and alone those moments are what life is about because life pulls to the center like that those are actually the moments that connect us those are the moments when if we can lean into them in a different way that's when we join up with others so an opportunity for love rather than just for for fear and if magic in some weird childish way <laughs> it's probably a little bit beyond beyond my remit on stage but somewhere yeah somewhere i'm thinking that in the back of my mind well we're living in a day and age now where we're constantly questioning what the truth is what is reality what is real what is fake and there was something rather comforting and enchanting about being in the audience, watching you perform your show, and um, having absolutely no clue mm. as to how you were doing any of it, grasping the arm of Emily mm. sitting next to me as we were like, how is this possible? How is this possible? And then after the show, trying to find all the clues online, which it is not possible to do. <laughs> It's actually kind of nice to know that even if you don't know, mm. 
in this case, it's okay. It's okay. And luckily, you're spared the curse of the boyfriend who has to tell the girlfriend how it was all done. This is a really, very common thing in the intermissions of my shows. It's a very strange kind of mansplaining thing that, yeah, that happens. So, uh, yeah, oh, luckily, God. we've reached a whole that. new depth of, <laughs> of reality here. Darren Brown, thank you so much for enforcing my belief in magic, despite your not being a mind reader. It really does feel in the best possible way that you understand humanity better than anyone I've ever experienced. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Wow, it was such a treat. Thank you so much, Debbie. Darren Brown's phenomenal show Secret is currently on Broadway in a strictly limited engagement, so make a beeline to getting your tickets today. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. You can find out more about Darren as well as his books, his shows, his art, and his photography on his official website, darrenbrown.co.uk. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiner. 